Hi, everybody. This is Sal DeFusco, and welcome to Coffee Talk. Hello, and welcome again to the official podcast of the Guitar Department at Berklee College of Music. My name's Ian, and we have another episode of Coffee Talk for you. We've got guitar professor Sal DeFusco with us this week. Sal is a longtime veteran of the jazz and rock scene here in Boston, and he's also toured all over the world, from France to Albania to China and Taiwan. He's played with an incredible array of folks like Gary Burton, Susan Tedeschi, George Garzone, Peter Erskine, and he's also recorded three full-length albums as a solo artist. Sal has some really inspiring and important messages in this interview for anyone studying music, so definitely stick around. And as always, a lot of this content will also be available on YouTube, and we have a ton of other great content on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, so give us a like and a subscribe on whatever platform you use. Here's our interview with Sal DeFusco. Welcome, everyone. I'm Kim Perlack. I'm the chair of the guitar department, and welcome to another Coffee Talk. And today... We have, as usual, our chair, assistant chair, Cheryl Bailey, with us. Hello, everybody. Hello. And we've got our senior coordinator, Ian Steed, as usual. Hey, all. Hello, Ian. And then you're hearing our special guest today, Professor Sal Fusco. Sal, welcome to Coffee Talk. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. This is awesome. So, Sal, the first question everybody wants to know is, do you drink coffee, and how do you take your coffee? <laughs> I certainly do drink coffee, and, you know, uh, this is on YouTube, so, you know, I do have one beef that I just want to get out in the open. Mm -hmm. I love this cup. This Berkeley cup is awesome. I love the color, mm -hmm. and I love the logo. The logo is great. I just have one beef, though. It's not big enough. See, yeah. I usually use this Whoa. in the morning. Okay, if you're so, listening, <laughs> I just want to say that if you're listening and you're not... It's about three times the size. Yeah, if you're not watching this, if you're listening instead, Sal has like sort of the, the you know, giant... Number one dad on there. Look at that. Isn't that nice? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like three times the size of the Berkeley mug, which is already a big mug. A big mug. Now, I can only have that in the morning because otherwise I get the jitters wicked. Now, <laughs> that is a serious amount of coffee that you take in. How many uh, of those do you have? No, so I don't, I don't really drink that much. I can't. <laughs> but um, I do take it black. I usually have uh, the Starbucks, what do you call it? The uh, Pike's Place is my favorite. And uh, we have the K-Cups, and I usually have uh, five Truvia in my black coffee. And that's the way I like it. Nice. So it's sweet, but, you know, it's with the Truvia stuff, so not the real sugar. Keep my figure, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Did that develop over time? Did your coffee taste develop over time? Um, you know, <clears throat> oh, sorry. <clears throat> No, we've been doing that for a long time. My wife used to make the percolated stuff, but then we got the uh, K-cup thing, and that just works so much better, and it's so much easier. Mm -hmm. And, of course, when I go to my parents' house, I have the espresso. you got to have the espresso because nobody can make it like my mother. I'm sorry. 
I hope my wife's not listening. But <laughs> <laughs> you know the real Italian stuff. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Oh, that's great. Um, yeah, I love coffee. So, Sal, the next question. Yeah. That we always ask is, can you tell us a little bit about your Berkeley first days? Like what? What was it like? Do you what do you remember? So first days going to school or teaching? Well, you've had two different first days, so it would be interesting. Actually, to hear. three. Oh, you've had three. Could you tell us yeah. a little bit about what you remember about each one? Well, yeah. So you know, I started taking lessons at a young age, five. So for about ten years, I studied at this local, you know, music school here in Medford. I grew up in Boston. And, you know, I started getting serious about 15 and I called Berkeley and I said, hey, could you hook me up with a private teacher? I want to study with a Berkeley teacher, you know, and uh, they actually gave me Garrison Fuel's phone number. So this has got to be, you know, what, I'm almost 60 now. So, you know, 35 years ago. So, you know, so I got Garrison Fuel's number and, uh, you know, we st I started taking lessons from him and, you know, I would go over to Berkeley, kind of sort of his after hours. I, I think he just started teaching there at that time. So uh, that was kind of my first experience. You know, I grew up in Boston, so, you know, I've been, I was around uh, a lot. So that was my first experience and that was great. Um, then after studying with uh, Garrison Fuel for a while, I actually hooked up with John Damien. And this was like in my 20s, and I started studying with him. I got really friendly with John, and, and he was cool. And you, so in 1980, when I graduated high school, I was actually all ready to come to Berkeley. I was signed up, had the orientation fee paid, and I was going to start in 1980. but. Right at the last minute, I was supposed to start in September 1980. In August, this band asked me to join them. So I was like, oh. And, you know, they had all the, the high hopes of becoming famous and all this stuff. And, you know, we remember the police, you know, the band, the police who drove around the country in a van. You know, we were like, oh, yeah, let's get a van. Let's drive around the country, man, and play all these clubs. So I actually decided the last minute not to go to Berkeley in 1980, I joined his band, and lo and behold, I stayed in the band for 10 years. And finally, and during that time, I was studying with John Damien on and off when I was in town, and John would always talk to me, he said, dude, you should really consider going to Berkeley, you know, go, you know, go go to the college, you know, really go and, and make it happen. And he, and I was like, I don't know, I don't know. So, but finally, it, it uh, you know, a kind of, uh, it, you know, it, it hit me. I said, yeah, you know, this is time. It's time for a change. This was 1990. So 10 years later, I decided to go to Berkeley. And I was 27 years old when I started. <laughs> so, but what was really cool, I mean, you know, it's, it was, it's a different thing. I mean, I, you know, I see the benefits of starting earlier, but it was kind of cool to go a little bit later because I already had 10 years of playing experience, you know, on the road. And I knew a lot of the teachers I was gigging with, a, a good number of them, you know. And uh, so it was kind of a cool experience, but I was kind of older than everybody else. So it was a little weird, you know. But, you know, it kind of worked out good for me. And I'll tell you, um, my experience was it was just amazing. You know, it was just such an amazing experience 
because I was in my little box for about 10 years and I was in this band and we were doing, you know, chasing kind of all the trends of the eighties, you know, trying to be famous, you know, one month we were U2, the next month we were the, uh, what do you call it with the hair there? The, the Pelicans, you know, I forgot what that, <laughs> forgot, you know, the, the you flock, know, of it, seagulls. flock of seagulls, flock of seagulls. Yeah. I mean, you know, we were trying to be everybody. We the were Pelicans. Chasing. We were chasing every trend, man. You know, the <laughs> flock of seagulls. That's the one, man. They're and, both ocean birds. Like, yeah, I don't no. like that. It reminds me of Scarface. Look at the pelicans. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, so um, what was I going to say? So it was, you know, I was in that little box, but when I went to Berkeley, it was like all of a sudden, man, the doors blew wide open. You know, I'm, I'm playing with this Czechoslovakian drummer. I'm hanging with this, you know, guy from Hungary, all the different cultures, all the different, uh, you know, perspectives of music I just didn't have because I was in such a small box of doing what we were doing. And uh, so it was a my and John was right, you know, it was exactly what I needed at the time. You know, I'm a slow learner, so it took me 10 years to get there. But but it really was. And that was the biggest part, I think, that um, really made the biggest difference for me was the networking, was meeting the people, seeing all the different musical instruments, uh, all the different uh, musical uh, influences and cultures being brought in. It was just a wonderful, wonderful thing. And uh, I loved it. I loved it. You know, know, it's interesting. I I have a question for you just about what you've just said. I find it really interesting that when you started studying with a Berkeley teacher, when you worked with Garrison, he wasn't really that much older than you. No. Young teacher and you were a very young person. And then later when you came back, you were an older student. Yes. And that is fascinating that you got to have both of those experiences. Like, what do you think first you learned as a teenager from having a teacher who is a Berkeley professor, but really very young because Garrison started teaching at Berkeley in his early 20s? Like, was there something impactful about that that you could put your finger on? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I think the, the jazz training, you know, I mean, Garrison was just, you know, a phenomenal jazz musician so you know that was kind of my first exposure to that kind of training at least you know so that was great but you know it was just good to you know I mean he would share a lot about what he was doing and his uh, experience at Berkeley and his teaching there so it was just great you know I mean it was a you know they became really good friends and then of course when I you know we became colleagues it was even more awesome but yeah yeah so yeah, I learned a lot from those guys. John Damien, uh, mostly, I would say, because I spent the, the most time with him, you know, which was great. We were also gigging together, too. We were doing a lot of duo stuff. And <laughs> back then, you know, <laughs> we would do these little, uh, you know, Christmas uh, parties at the these uh, uh, clothing stores. You know, <laughs> we'd have our Christmas hats on. <laughs> we'd play these, these duos, these jazz, too. It was just so much fun. We had a steady gig down in Faneuil Hall, and, you know, just, and then we'd go to Buzzy's Roast Beef, man, after the gig, and, you know, and we would just talk so much, you know, I just learned so much from that guy. I miss, I miss the both of them, you know, so much, but, uh, 
Yeah, I bet. Did that answer your question? I don't even know if I answered that answer. I think it did because I think because your ages were so close. Right. You know, you were learning from them as master players, but you were also close to the same age. And so as you kind of grew exponentially in your skill set, then you kind of became friends with them and hanging with them. Yeah. And it and there wasn't really a generational difference. You were the you know, there were a number of years, but that number of years gets smaller as you get older. So yeah, it sounds that's like true. You, you had some kind of instant colleagues and your teachers because of the age range. Yeah, that's really a good point. Well, back then, because, you know, I was 15, it still seemed like he was so much older than me, you know, yeah. even though he really wasn't. But then when we became colleagues, it was like, gee, you're really not that much older than me. <laughs> you know, gosh, wait a minute. <laughs> but, you know, to me, he was like a god, you know, I was 15 and, you know, going over to his house in Brookline and, you know, it was awesome. Do you think that there are specific things that you took from having like a colleague relationship with your teachers and also maybe being an older student when you came formally to Berkeley? Were there things about those experiences that translate specifically into how you teach or how you look at teaching now that you're a professor? Um, let me see if I understand the question. Um, you know, so my experience of going there a little bit older. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, you know, I'm not sure, um, you know, if it affected my teaching. I mean, I, I do think that, yeah, well, I would say yes, because I did have a, a different perspective coming at it from having a little bit more experience going to Berkeley. So, I, I yeah, I do see that. And... Because I was a little bit older when I went and uh, had a little bit more experience, I was exposed to a lot of cool things like, you know, they had me play the singer showcases, the commencement concerts, you know, different things like that. That was really kind of cool, you know. Mm -hmm. So I tell my students to try to get as much involved in those type of things as they can. You know what I mean? Because uh, those experiences are so priceless, you know, um, to be able to do whatever, you know, service to the college as a student, I think is cool. So I had a unique, you know, uh, opportunity, I guess. But I guess uh, I try to stress to my students to look for those opportunities. You know, don't just be a spectator, get involved. So I would say from that perspective, yes. What do you think are the things that you learn by doing those things like that, you know, maybe there's some of the similar things you learned from being a professional for 10 years. Like what are the kind of intangibles that you learned from doing those kinds of performances and gigs? Oh, I mean, it's, it's the real deal. You know, it's, it's, it's school, but you know, it's the real world school, you know, and I think, you know, that, that's just such an important part. And, and I do stress that also to my students too. Um, you know, uh, whatever opportunity you can to perform, you know, even if it means doing free gigs, going to a nursing home, whatever, because, you know, you're going to learn stuff on a gig that you're just not going to learn in a classroom. Now you need to learn what you need to learn in the classroom, but unless you're putting that out there and getting the feedback, you know, it's not going to stick, you know, so that that's a very important aspect to it, I think. And, you know, again, I think I had a very unique situation where I had that kind of experience going in. So um, I do stress that. I do stress that to my students. Play, man. 
and, and, and I do a lot of playing with my students all the time. You know, I like, I like doing that. Um, we always try to reserve some time, 10 minutes at least to play some tunes, you know, because um, it's important, you know, you're learning all the vocabulary, all the different things, but if you're not applying it, then you don't really feel like you, you know, you're making the kind of progress that, um, but when you, when you hear it coming out and playing on a tune, Kind of like what me and Cheryl did yesterday. Oh, what a treat that was. Oh, that was awesome. You know, you feel good. You feel good about like, hey, okay. You know, it it makes sense what I'm learning. So, Yeah, it sounds like in a way, um, because you were seen as a young colleague to your teachers, you've brought that into the way that you see your students. I believe so, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Cheryl, what's on your mind at this point? Um, well, in talking to you in the past, Saul, um, we talked about when you were coming up, you know, in an Italian family and everything was about songs. Mm. Learned all those songs and melodies. And, and when I think of your playing, I mean, besides the, all the diverse styles that you do, I think about how melodic you are. And, and I know I've, you know, maybe caught you here and there, and I hear you working on sort of melodic development with students. So I just was curious of your thoughts about that and how you work on that with students. And, you know, I mean, that obviously permeates you from your early childhood experience of, you know, play me a song. Um, Well, yeah, I mean, I wish I could remember the songs. But yes, I've learned a lot of songs. I just have a hard time remembering them. <laughs> no, I, 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 I can remember a few of them anyway. But yeah, no, I think um, you're right. When I, when I was growing up um, and started playing guitar from a young age, you know, I studied with a teacher that, you know, he wasn't that great as far as vocabulary and, you know, jazz language or whatever. But um, he did stress learning songs and uh you know to me that was a it was a really good thing because it enabled me to start gigging pretty early in life you know um you know i was um you know by the time i was 15 16 i was doing gigs already i was doing three four weddings you know back then was the the gb scene was was kind of big as it is now although it's a whole different bag these days but uh, it enabled me to, hey, I know songs so I can work. So I always had that kind of mentality, the, uh, like I told you before, kind of that blue collar mentality of, hey, you know, somebody was asking me, goes, you know, so you a jazz guitar player? Are you a rock guitar player? I'm like, uh, I think I created my own genre called uh, pay the bills genre. <laughs> I'm a pay the bills guitar player. How's that? <laughs> So that was kind of ingrained in me from a young age. And uh, so, and I see that a lot. I see a lot of students come in and they might have even a ton of technique, but if you ask them to play a song, they'll look at you like, huh? I mean, anything, you know, autumn leaves, uh, something, you know, and they'll look at you with the blank kind of look. Now, you know, I'm not saying that that's the end all that you need to know all these standards or anything like that. I mean, I know it's a whole different age that we're dealing with and I don't want to be a an old fogey old-fashioned dude. But 
I do think uh, it, as far as me personally, I think it really helped my development um, in learning songs early on, you know, pieces of music, which was great. Um, and I do uh, try to stress that with my students. You know, I do, um, you know, there's always a, a period of time, you know, like I said, that we set aside or we're working on one tune or some tune hey, here's your exercises, here's your proficiency, but hey, let's have a tune that you're working on, you know? And uh, that helps. So when they come back, we can play the tune and then add another tune and then add another tune. I often say, think about it. If you learn one new tune a week in 52 weeks, you're going to have 52 songs. That's pretty cool. You do that for two years, that's 100 songs. Hey, that'll cover most gigs right there, you know? So... Well, also, it reminds me of Joe Past. I saw him when I was a kid, and he said something to the, the point of by improvising is, is creating melody on the spot. Mm. So the more melodies that you know, the more you have to draw on. And, and that's kind of what you're doing there. You know, you learn all these melodies. It teaches you about phrasing, about just good melodic construction. And that's going to influence everything you do moving forward in terms of creating melody. So I, that, I, that really hit me when I heard that from Joe Pass, who had a wow. similar kind of upbringing where, you know, his family would get together and go, hey, Joe, play some songs, some pretty songs, you know. And so he was always about playing melodies and harmonizing mm. melodies and stuff. And so I, I, get, I hear that in your playing so clearly that Thank you, just that you Thank have you. That, that wealth of of song, song melodies inside. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, that was really the way that I first started improvising was just embellishing the melody. You know, you'd play a melody, and then if it was time to solo, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to solo, so I would just embellish the melody a little bit. And I think that's what you're talking about. And then I came to learn that that's a very powerful tool in learning how to improvise. But I didn't know it at the time. It's just <laughs> the only thing I knew how to do, <laughs> you know. But, uh, you know, you hear cats doing that, um, taking melodies, embellishing them, you know, uh, taking motifs and using them within the solo. It's, it's a really cool thing. You're right. I mean, you're, you're very, very right about that. That's yeah, huge. Yeah. You know, another aspect of your playing that I think jumps out as people hear you, is just your tremendous facility. You have a tremendous ability to play like the most intricate rhythmic things at a, a hugely high velocity. But you got chops, me, man. Yeah, man. That's how you say it. Uh, <laughs> you got chops. But you, you have, guys are way too nice. Very encouraging. Do it in this way where every time I watch you, I remind myself I have to go home and practice breathing so that I can have the lyricism and the breathing that you have because you are relaxed. You're like, you're doing it like, oh. like it's just flowing. And, um, and so I think that there's a misconception sometimes when people feel like, well, you're either a lyrical player or you have these chops and you have both things. And so I'm wondering, Thank if you. You, well, you're welcome. Um, but I'm wondering, like, could you give people some insight into that? Like maybe how you kind of developed your 
your playing, but also the way you think about lines and melody. Wow. How do you Jesus. develop those deep, things? Deep questions, deep questions, which I don't know. I just had this really quick thought. Um, that thing that you guys did yesterday was awesome. That webinar, by the way. I mean, that was really, that was some deep waters, man. So I just wanted to throw that out there. I really enjoyed that. And I want to say um, for the people who are listening that the webinar he's re uh, referring to is our um, panel on rhythm. It's a faculty panel on rhythm. And you can find it on our YouTube channel. And um, it had four of our colleagues uh, talking with Cheryl and I about how to approach different aspects of rhythm in your playing and time. Yes, yes. And I bring that up because, um, you know, there was a lot of very deep things talked about. You know, so for speed, of course, you know, it's practice on your instrument, um, you know, exercises. Um, you know, I started with the uh, Berkeley Method books. You know, I must have went through the Berkeley one, two, and three, three or four times, you know, in my, uh, my practicing career. And, you know, working with a metronome and then getting a lot of um, uh, different uh, exercises on vocab. I'm very big on vocabulary and, and, and really shedding my scales. I, I studied with, after, um, when I started Berkeley in 1991, I also started studying with Charlie Banakis. And uh, that's why I feel this kindred spirit with uh, Mike Stern, because um, we both studied with the same teacher. And... Uh, you know, Charlie was very, very big on, you know, the, the vocabulary, the exercises, the permutations, the, and all of that sort of thing. You know, the arpeggios, the tensions, the every which way to do it. So whether it be horizontal, vertical, the whole nine yards, he was just all about that. So, uh, you know, and he would always have me push tempos. And so I would practice slowly but he would also tell me you know you can't stay there you gotta push to tempo so he would have me like shed giant steps at 300 i mean coltrane didn't even do it at 300 i mean he was like a 280 285 you know not that i can play giant steps uh great or anything I, i'm still shedding it you know but you know that's he would have you push it even if it didn't sound that great, just to, you know, to get your tempos up. And whether that's good or bad, I'm not sure. That's the Charlie Banakis method, but it did help me to, to build up some speed in these lines, you know. Um, I think the, the fluidity that you're talking about, that's a whole nother thing. And, and I, I got to say, I really appreciate you saying that because um, it's something that I've been really really striving to work on because you know, I'm a very fearful person. I have a lot of anxiety. I have a lot of, you know, doubt. I have insecurities. And I think a lot of times in the past that can really get in the way of my playing. And even, you know, what they were talking about yesterday with time, one of the biggest thing that, that affects my time is just nervousness. It's, you know, you know, um, just anxiety, fear, you know, that's, that's a big, huge thing. And so I'll be honest in the last, whatever amount of time I've been working really, really hard at that. And it's not even playing my instrument. It's 
just working on what's between my my ears, you know, and and I do that, you know, today through meditation. I, I meditate every day for about a half an hour. That helps. Um, you know, I read, um, you know, inspirational materials. I pray. You know, I got to do a lot to manage my anxiety because it gets in the way. You know, it, it can really get in the way. And, and you know, here I am, I'm a 60-year-old guy. I can imagine a student. You know, I'll never forget when I walked into my first proficiency, you know, and it was a guy I knew it was John Damien. And I was still, you know, like, ah, you know, shaking. And it's tough. So I, I really feel for students and their nervousness and their anxieties. But, you know, I want to give students hope. It is something that you can work on. And it's not something that you work on here. It's not something that you work on with a metronome. It, it really is working on what's going on in between the old noggin, you know, between the ears. So I journal a lot. Um, you know, uh, I see a therapist, you know, things like that. You know, I got to manage that stuff because it does affect my playing. It just does. And uh, but I think we all got uh, to certain levels and certain degrees insecurities and doubts and fears and and anxieties. And I think for a musician, you know, you got it. You got to work on it, <laughs> you know, I, or at least, you know, I can speak for myself. I had to. Um, I can imagine as a classical guitar player, I mean, if I make mistakes, it's kind of like, oh, whatever, you know, you're a rock, jazz rock guitar player, make a mistake, whatever. I can imagine as a class, you, know, you probably know more than, tons more than me about that whole realm. I mean, I couldn't imagine being a classical player and having a, you know, oh, that would drive me crazy. But, so maybe, you know, you can expound a little on that yourself. Like, what do you do to manage your eggs? I don't think you have any, Kim. I mean, you're always so relaxed. I don't know how you do it. Well, I think you and I are embarking on the same work because I have what could have said the same thing about you. You just always seem to me like super positive and centered and confident and just... I'm here, I hear all my skills. I'm here to bring them to whatever situation. So I've tried to take a page, you know, honestly from colleagues like yourself who have that approach and look at it like a learning experience, right? Like what are all the things you have to do to manage what we have to do? Um, but I completely relate to everything you're saying. I think it's so important that you said that because first of all, I don't think there's anybody who would ever watch you play or hear you play that would ever guess that you're managing that issue. And um, so well, thank I think you. that's probably the biggest compliment you can give me. <laughs> <laughs> I really, you know, I, I appreciate that a lot. I really do because you know how it is that, you know, it can be debilitating. It really can. And, um, yeah. you know, it's just kind of nice to, to make progress and it's slow progress. It's not an easy, but I think if students, you know, if I could give students any kind of advice is to get on that early. You yeah, know? I think that's the one thing that studying in classical music school, you have to get it on it early because you're always a soloist. Mm. And you're always like, I mean, as a classical guitarist, mm. you play chamber music, but the chamber music is very challenging for a guitarist because of the nature of our instrument. When, mm. when you're playing with violinists or cellists or flutists, they're used to reading single lines. They've been reading these lines for their whole lives. They anticipate what's there. Maybe if it's new music, there are some extended techniques or approaches that aren't the same, but 
the guitar part would be, you know, what would be so dense and thorny and contrapuntal and, you know, you, you can't just read it down. You would have to work on it or you'd have to be able to kind of fake your way through it. So there was that anxiety of going where you knew that like, oh my gosh, I'm going to be hacking away and then someone is going to come in and sight read this. And then oh, wow. when you're a soloist, you have to play super complex things that you memorize by yourself on a stage alone. Mm. And the and the whole style is is sort of centered around, you know, being perfect. You know, like someone f like just flubs a note, doesn't hit it exactly, or like, oh, yeah. Oh. You know, like they, they didn't get that. So I think because of the nature of that, though, what you're saying, everything you laid out, I can completely relate to that. My very early undergrad teachers were like, you have to meditate. You have to learn oh. how to breathe. You mm. have to take care of your body. You know, so they would say, like, do a, um, a soft martial art like Tai Chi or something so that you're moving your body and you understand how your larger muscle groups work with your smaller muscle groups and you're breathing and you're meditating. And then you have to bring that to your practicing every day. You have to integrate those things. Um, awesome. Everything you're awesome. saying about like taking walks and journaling and getting mm -hmm. to know yourself and how your non-musical problems affect your musicianship. Big because Big. you know, even what you you and Cheryl were talking about about like um, you know learning more songs or like you know if you want to play lyrically you have to know songs. Like we would have teachers say, well you know, you're 19 and, and you're, you know, you haven't, you haven't even had a tremendous breakup at this point. So if you're going to play this really sad 19th century music, you, you're going to have to read like Proust or Dostoevsky or something like some heavy dark literature, you know, and you have all these teenagers like reading this heavy stuff, like, oh my goodness. But then when you go to play, it's like, you know, you can't have all the experiences unless you study. And so that experience that you and Cheryl were talking about, about listening and learning materials and the traditions and and then managing yourself because once you add all that up it's so much to be responsible for and then you're young and then you don't want to look like you don't know what you're doing and but you are going to not know what you're doing at some time so you have to manage scary. Yeah, all yeah. of the scary anxiety it's That's it's so true. true and um what's so great i think for students listening to this is we all experience it but you don't necessarily think your teachers are experiencing it and they, yeah, they are. Know. Yeah, they are. We're just more comfortable with being uncomfortable, Sal. That's our. That's the difference. Maybe, maybe. And you hit two two important things too. I think exercise, eating right. To me, yeah, well, maybe because I'm getting older, I don't know, but it's just such an important part of my life now. I mean, I just, you know, I'm at the gym almost every morning at 5 a.m. I get up early and. Uh, you know, and I eat three meals a day and I don't eat in between no matter what. And, uh, you know, uh, you know, I lost about 60 pounds. I, I used to be a pretty heavy guy. And that made a really huge difference for me, too. You know, my plane, you know, huge. So th there's a lot of different aspects to being a musician than the actual notes you play or you know, um, techniques that you practice. So I agree with that. Um, it's huge. It's huge. Yeah. Cheryl, that must come up when you're thinking about advising people who want to gig all the time, like Sal did, and be on the road, like taking care of your body becomes a huge part of that, correct? Absolutely, because it's, well, just playing is an athletic event. 
so how we take care of ourselves as we play but and posture you know those mm. things you have to maintain that all the time it's not just going to automatically happen and so you're in those situations where you're on a tour bus or you're on a plane or you're just sleeping somewhere and you don't so you, you have to make sure wherever you go or you have a routine you can do in your hotel room or as you travel because it'll beat you up you know but but all those practices will when you go to play you'll have that posture there you won't have to work for it it's just that's how you are so yeah the, i think these are really important things that people maybe on the outside don't consider but definitely as we're coaching young young musicians to um get that practice happening for them yeah one thing i i love in addition to all of this that you bring to your teaching of the guitar and and your labs and your ensembles is you also teach all of these other fundamentals in other departments. Like, so if you're listening to this, Sal is one of the few faculty at Berkeley that teaches across multiple divisions. And I think you have this ability to say like, coming in, like you, you're teaching playing, so you're teaching guitar, private lessons. You also develop the Mike Stern lab, a few other guitar labs that come right out of your guitar influences. But then you're also teaching in the liberal arts department, like the career development class. Like what are all the things that people should be thinking about when they're looking to build the next phase of their career? And then you've also taught music theory yep. in your training classes. So you are very aware of all of the building blocks in guitar playing, musicianship in general, and in your life that really have to come together in order for things to work. Yes. Well, thank you. Yeah, and I, uh, I really do enjoy doing all of those things. Um, yeah, you're right. It does give me a, uh, a unique perspective on, you know, it's, uh, I just recently wrote a, an article uh, on a blog for a friend of mine who is uh, creating a business to help students get into the best music schools of their choice. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, he teaches at Berkeley, so of course he's trying to get everybody to come to Berkeley. But Good. but no, he's 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 really trying to help uh, you know students to figure out how to you know be successful in coming in. And uh, you know, one thing that I see in teaching harmony is you know how much um, students really do uh, need to come in a little bit more prepared in knowing music theory. It can be a lot uh, very beneficial for them. Mm -hmm. And now I understand it because you have certain instruments, like if you're a piano player, you're going to be learning harmony from the get-go versus if you're a vocalist, you probably have very little, if any at all, experience. But I do think it's important to develop those different um, uh, areas of your musicianship. Uh, I think in order to, to get into a school like Berkeley, but to thrive in a school like Berkeley too. So yes, I, I enjoy a harmony. I enjoy ear training. I enjoy performance. Um, and uh, I even enjoyed my little stint in the liberal arts department where I had Ian as a student. I had, <laughs> Ian was one of my students in the, uh, what was that class? It was- uh, I was hoping you were gonna remember that. <laughs> professional development. Now, of course, Ian could have taught the class. Yeah. He should have been teaching it and I should have been learning. 
he was my best student, I got to say. He was really, he really stood out. But, uh, you know, that was a great experience too, you know, kind of looking at the business side of, of music. That's a whole nother aspect that people forget. You know, music is not just an art form, it's a, it's a business. And um, if, whether we like it or not. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, you know how it goes. When you teach, you end up learning more than you're actually teaching. So I feel like I, I learn more from teaching these classes than I do, than I think the students get. But yeah, it's all good. Yeah, I enjoy it. So Ian, I think this is a really perfect time for you to ask your question or... Uh -oh. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> is he going to get me back? Yeah, here it comes. <laughs> Look uh, out, Sal. Look out. This is the revenge of Ian. <laughs> oh, not, hey, I got to go, by the way. <laughs> I have a class. I need more coffee. <laughs> okay. Really quick, just a, a little light question here. What's Whoa. something that uh, students come to you as either, you know, in your lab or your lessons, and they're asking questions about what they're playing or what they're working on? And you you see something in them and you think like, well, what you really should be thinking about is this. Mm. Like what's something that they should be thinking about that they might not think to ask? Well, I think that's unique to every student, of course. Um, but I think as an educator, you're trained to kind of find what they need to work on, you know? And uh, so that could be, their time feel, you know, what we, what you guys talked about yesterday, um, the nervousness. I think Tim Miller put it in a great way, you know, uh, rushing is probably one of the biggest nemesis. Um, if they're rushing while they're playing, while if they're in front of the beat, um, it could be anything. Um, so let's see, what, what's another example? Um, it could be little nuances like they're playing and they don't realize that they're tapping their feet out of time. <laughs> I'm like, Hey, do you realize you're tapping your feet like at a totally different tempo? <laughs> you should probably try to just keep your feet flat on the floor there. And I probably do the same thing. I don't know. Sometimes you don't realize what, what you're doing, but, um, but I think we're trained as educators to kind of to find those, um, places where we can help the student to, to get better. Um, yeah, John Finn helped me with that, you know, cause, uh, he, he had me, uh, teach his class. He had a very high level ensemble and I went, Oh my gosh, these guys are amazing. What the heck am I going to go in there and teach them? You know? And John Finn said, he goes, listen, there's always something that they can learn. There's always something uh, you as an educator will be able to, to see and to help them. So I guess to answer your question, it could be a myriad of things. Um, but I think it, it is important uh, as a, to be a good teacher is to find those things and to help them hone in on, you know, what they can grow in. So I don't know if that answered your question, but. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, cool. You know, as you're talking, Sal, I think a really important thing to mention is that it seems like in everything that you do and all of the things that you've done when, as you're looking back, you found some really joyful aspect of it, 
that allows you to keep learning. And I think it's really important to mention that, maybe have you talk about it a little more, because I think a lot of people, especially as they're leaving school and they're thinking about what they're going to do next, they'll say like, yeah, if I was going to teach, I only want to teach what I do. I don't want to teach theory. That's not my thing. Yeah. But then there you are and you're teaching theory and you're like, hey, this is really fascinating. Like there's something in here that I'm learning about my playing or about the way people learn or there's something that about each thing that you do, whether it's what you ideally thought would be an avenue professionally or not, you mm. seem to grab the joyful thing that helps you learn. And and I'm just wondering if you were always like that, even as a kid or or did you kind of come to that philosophy about music? I think I came to that philosophy. Um, and again, I think it's the genre that I created, the pay the bills genre. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think it's why I really enjoyed doing the, um, uh, the class that uh, Ian took, the what, professional development class, is, you know, I think a lot of students can get discouraged because that they're, they're trying to figure out like, sheesh, how the heck am I going to really make a living doing this? Mm -hmm. And I saw a couple of different trends, uh, you know, years ago, it happened when DJs came on the scene, right? I remember that, you know, well, it started way back when the mini Moog came out, actually, when the mini Moog came out, everybody's going, Oh my gosh, synthesizers. They're not going to need instruments anymore. Synthesizers can sound like all these instruments, you know, and, uh, but that never was the case, right? You know, because a synthesizer is not going to take the place of an instrument. And then I saw it happen with DJs. When the DJ started taking over a lot of the work, musicians were going, Oh my gosh, we're never going to work again, you know? And, uh, these DJs are going to take over the world. And, you know, that's not the case. That's not the case. And then, of course, we saw it happen when all the music started being offered for free on the Internet and a lot of uh, artists were not getting paid for their recordings. So, um, so there was these trends that really, I think, sent a lot of fear and a lot of doubt in people going, geez, I mean, well, I even ever be able to make a living doing this, you know? And what I found in my career is the way I can make a, a decent living is by creating as many income streams as I could. And I think studying at a place like Berkeley is perfect for that because you're learning so many different types of things. And if you can really hone in and use that to your benefit, you can create a lot of different um, income streams. You know, I had a little recording studio in my house. I had some people coming over. I, I didn't know nothing about engineering, but I learned it, you know. And, uh, you know, with my stylistic diversity, you know, I, hey, if somebody calls me to do a classical gig, I'm not going to say no. I'm going to do it. I mean, it's not going to be Kim Perlack. I'm going to be using a pick. <laughs> but... I'll get through the gig and it'll be okay. You know, it's going to work. And uh, if it was a jazz gig, even though I don't consider myself a jazz guitar player, I'm going to do it, you know? And uh, so I think I developed that mentality and I, and I try to put that in my students too, to really, and I think that class was really good for that. Cause that was that period where a lot of students were discouraged by uh, 
a lot of this music being put out for free. And, you know, I would get questions all the time. How am I ever going to make a living? So I had to tell them, hey, there's a lot of different ways to make a living. Um, I had a guitar student who was, you know, great player. Uh, and, but what, what, what I learned about him was he had this incredible talent for effects. And I actually hired him to build this big effects pedal board for me. And he knew everything about the inside outs of pedals and this and that and what goes in what. And, and I have no clue about this stuff, but he knew it all. And I told him, I said, dude, you could get a job working for a high level pedal company. I mean, they would pay tons of money to have a guy with your kind of knowledge. He wasn't even thinking that way. He was thinking of becoming the next Steve I. But he was like, gee, I didn't even think of that. And I think he actually went on to get a job in that field. Oh, cool. So, yeah. And so I think as educators, it's important for us to inspire our students to see beyond, maybe because of that little box I was in from 1980 to 1990 and Berkeley kind of opened up my mind to see a lot of more opportunities and possibilities. I think it's up to us to help our students to see the there's so much more opportunity and possibilities to work than ever, than ever. I don't care about the free music on the internet, the DJs, the mini Moog, <laughs> you know, it doesn't matter. People are always going to want to hear music and people are going to always need people that know how to help musicians to get their music out and all of that. So I, I think I, I see that as an important part of my gig. So, yeah, you, I appreciate that because I, I am like that. I like taking on new things and I like getting in and getting my feet wet and and I enjoy it. It keeps things fresh, but it keeps me learning and, it you know, it's it's just a good thing for me. So. That's great. That I mean, I think that ability that you had, even at a young age, to think about your playing and then all of the professional skills and musical skills that made up your playing and then that surrounded your professionalism, that has made your career and your teaching style. And I think that's it's really important for people to hear at this stage, especially in the pandemic, especially coming out of it. We don't know exactly what yeah work in yeah. music is going to look at but i think if if everybody can just keep listening to you over and over again which of course they can i think it helps you stay creative and helpful and um to yourself and hopeful about yes. what could come and and you're starting to see possibilities maybe instead of roadblocks and i think that's really yeah important. yeah 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 you know you bring up the pandemic that's a big one um it's interesting to see how different people cope with or have coped with the whole pandemic. And, you know, you hear about the suicide rates rising, you hear about, you know, the drug addictions and all of that and rising. And certainly maybe if I were younger, I, I would have chosen a more destructive way to, to cope with it. But, you know, this time around, uh, I was really happy. There is there is another way to do it. There's a more constructive way to handle these kind of uh, adversities, you know. And and, and I really, uh, it, it was hard. I, I got to say. I mean, it, it was definitely periods of frustration and periods of depression. But 
overall, I've tried to really maintain a, a, a kind of a silver lining attitude because there was a lot of great silver. I mean, as, t as challenging as it was and the people, you know, dying and getting sick. I mean, you know, you, you, what can you say about that? It's, it's sad. But I do think that when, when uh, devastating things like this happen, there is always opportunity for good to come out of it, you know. And, and I think as a musician, for me, it's been great to, you know, get more time to practice. Um, I learned a couple of new skills, which, I, you know, I was really happy about, like video. I, I, I didn't have a clue how to do video, you know. And now I'm making these little videos, and it's cool, you know, and... Uh, you know, logic. I learned logic. I, I didn't have a clue how to how to do that, and uh, you know, so I do think um, you, you know there is this silver line and, and connecting with people. I really felt like I was able to connect through mediums like this uh, a lot more, um, which I think has been good, and not only around your immediate area, but all over the world, which is kind of cool, you know. So, you know, I don't want to minimize how brutal uh, the pandemic was, but there was a, uh, there was, there's always a silver lining and it's your choice. Are you gonna deal with it, cope with it in a destructive way or a constructive way? And, uh, you know, it's kind of happy. <laughs> I, you know, for once I, did, uh, I stayed pretty constructive. I don't know how I did it, but <laughs> like I said, in my younger days, probably wouldn't have, you know. <laughs> But uh, thank God, you know, and uh, but, you know, you know, it's great to see the light at the end of the tunnel too. coming back to school. Oh, man, that was so good. I mean, when you guys, you know, offered who wants to come back, I, you know, I, my hand was up first. You know, mm -hmm. I just couldn't wait to get back in to see flesh and blood, you know, and uh, so I've been really enjoying be back. And I know things are just going to get better from here. So and I do want to say, you know, I don't know how much time we have, but you guys have done really a phenomenal, phenomenal job through this whole thing. I want to let you guys know and give you a really special thanks because you guys, uh, you know, all of you, Kim, Cheryl, Ian, I think you've not only kept the morale of the guitar department at a solid level, but I think you raised the bar. I think people are happier I think you're promoting the department in a better way. I think you're getting more stuff out there. So I see you guys doing that. I see you guys take advantage uh, and and grab good stuff out of this very horrible situation we had to deal with. So I'm very proud to be a part of this department and uh, and proud to know you guys. So it's good. You guys have done a really, really great job. Thank you. Uh, I think um, we are proud to know you. We're proud to Thank have you. you and all the faculty members. I think that right away, that was something we all realized is like, if we're, we're going to shepherd our way through this as a group, as a department, what we have is each other. Because that's all we have when we're not together is we have, we know the strengths of each other. And yeah, I'm uh, getting a little emotional here. I don't Take it easy now. <laughs> it's starting to drip a little bit here. Okay, all right, all right. Well. <laughs> But yeah, I think that that I appreciate that so much, Sal. And um, I think you're right. I think um, there's so many things that we'll take with us, and um, and some of that is being able to share these conversations with everybody. Because honestly, these were the conversations we just have in the office. We'd make mm. a pot of coffee in the office. That's right. We'd sit around it, and then we'd have these conversations together. And now, 
because of everything you said, that is so true that we've learned we're able to share this with other people and at a, in a much wider way. And so there's so many things that we found. We thought, well, if we did this, we could do other things. And so that kind of created our virtual campus and our way to keep everybody connected. And we've heard from alums and we've heard from um, just awesome. friends of the department and, and um, prospective students. And so I think we all are more connected ironically because of the things that kept us apart physically now we're more connected in a bigger sense so it's really cool um thank you one for one day at a time one day at a time yeah um so you're gonna have to get out of your house and get over to campus. yes i gotta go teach a uh, jazz improv techniques class at four o'clock so so Quickly, Cheryl, what's your final thought as we wrap this up so Sal, so Sal can fight Boston traffic? No problem. We all do not miss. I grew up here. I, I know all the ins and outs. <laughs> all right. That's the next coffee talk. Sal shows you where to park in Boston. Oh, no. <laughs> Most listened to episode ever. <laughs> good one. Good one. Cheryl, no, I'm sorry, you, well, thank you for... You got really deep in sharing, you know, your struggles with your, you know, feeling confident and and performance anxiety and stuff. I I know so many students and folks that follow us that are musicians that are not necessarily part of our campus are really going to appreciate. So thank you for sharing that. That was very helpful. My pleasure. And, and just your thoughts about, you know creating melody and, and creating a career really, really super, it's like golden, gold nuggets of information. Thank you. Thank you guys. Well, it's been an honor and a pleasure being with you folks. This has been great. Yeah. Ian, any last word? Yeah. Same thing as, as Cheryl. I really liked the way that the both of you mentioned how, you know, relaxed the other seemed. I think it's like really important for students to hear you know, when somebody seems that they're comfortable and they're playing, it doesn't mm. mean that they naturally don't have these issues, but that, that they worked on it and they had the maturity to deal with that go. in a, in a really go. great way. So I think that we all, you know, we could all stand to hear a little bit more of that. Good stuff. Thank you. Beautiful. Sal, thank you so much. My pleasure. Having coffee with us. And uh, so coffee cheers to Sal DeFusco, Professor Sal DeFusco. Thank you guys. And Cheryl Bailey, and um, an honor. See you next time on Coffee Talk. Cheers, everybody. That's good. Bye, everyone.